Hey everyone, welcome back to the online ministry of Grace Baptist Church. If you haven't been with us, we're in a series right now called The Unstuck Life. According to the Bible, some people are stuck because they've never heard or only believe part of the gospel message. Others never learn to connect to God's power in their lives. And some people figure out the receiving part, but not the sharing. We're convinced that the path to the unstuck life is believe, connect, share. And we hope that God leads you along that path as we look at the Bible together today. Now, today's passage looks at an area where many people get stuck. It's baptism. That was the case for me, at least. I put my faith in Christ just after my third year of university. Although it had been a rocky road to finally trust in Jesus, once I did, I was eager to follow him. I began to pray. I started to read the Bible. I began to attend church. I joined a Bible study. I went on my first Christian retreat. I learned to share my faith. And I even looked into a mission trip. A year later, I went to Japan and I stayed in the home of a missionary family. I still remember sitting on the sofa in their living room when the missionary asked about my baptism. When I explained that I hadn't been baptized, he was very gentle and gracious, but there was no hiding his surprise. Without any shame or condemnation, he just asked, well, why on earth not? <laughs> and I really didn't have a good answer for him. Looking back though, I can point to a number of things. To begin with, when I first understood the gospel, nobody explained to me that baptism was the normal way that you responded to the good news. As long as I made a private transaction of faith with God, I figured that I was good. Then when I began to actually follow Jesus, I think that I started doing the things that I could see practical value in. I read the Bible because I wanted to learn more. I prayed because I wanted to see God's work in my life. But I couldn't see how baptism would really help me, so it never became a priority. It's interesting how we do this, but in reading the Bible, I could see that baptism was part of the Christian life, but I was able to somehow disconnect the parts that referred to it and act like they didn't apply to me. Then the more that time passed, the more awkward it became, and the less inclined I was to even think about it. It took the honest surprise of a missionary's, why on earth not? to jolt me into considering how strange it was that I claimed to follow Jesus, but hadn't followed him in the very first step of Christian obedience. I don't know whether you've been baptized or whether it's been a long time since you thought about your baptism and what it means, but I want to look at a passage together and ask you to consider whether you've come to terms with all that the Bible teaches about this strange act. To do that, I'd ask you to turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, uh, click on the link for today's passage in the description below. I'm going to read the, the scripture today in three sections, starting with Matthew 3, verses 1 to 6. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. 
and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. This is the word of God. Now, the first lesson that stands out is that baptism is how you prepare for the coming of the king. Baptism welcomes Jesus' work in your life. It's a way that you mark the beginning of your walk with him. It's the first step of your journey with him. Baptism is how you prepare for the coming of the king. Now, as the scene opens, we're introduced to what looks like a very strange character. A man with an otherwise common name has been so associated with baptizing people that he just came to be known as John the Baptist. <laughs> but he's a bit of an oddball. Most people who have a message to get out would head to the center of town. He goes into the wilderness. He's in the desert-like region in the lower Jordan Valley. That's an unusual place to set up a ministry. His dress is unusual too. His clothes are made of coarse camel's hair with a leather belt to hold everything together. And he lived off of wild honey and the only insect that Leviticus allowed the Israelites to eat, locusts. While all of this just strikes us as odd, it sent a very clear message to first century Jews. The clothing identified him as a prophet, but his appearance and his diet signaled that he was a prophet in mourning. There was too much grief and too much anticipation for him to be enjoying fish, bread, or wine. Everything about him communicates urgency. He's a little bit like Mr. Carson or Mrs. Hughes on Downton Abbey, setting everyone about their preparations when they hear there's going to be an unexpected visit from King George and Queen Mary. We're prepared for the fact that something remarkable is about to happen. And in verse 2, he announces, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's calling the nation to turn back to God, as earlier prophets had done prior to an invasion or a great plague but he's announcing the arrival of God's kingdom here. He's saying that God's rule will be felt, God's power will be displayed. And this was an event that people have been talking about for hundreds of years. So it stirred up all kinds of nervous excitement. John was doing exactly what the prophet Isaiah had spoken of when he called the people to make a highway through the desert for God's arrival. And John's message is that the way that you make that highway and how you welcome God in your life is through repentance, by turning away from the world and putting your trust in him. Verse six describes the people who responded to John's message. It says, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. This is how you welcome the work of God in your life. You confess your sins, admitting where you've tried to play God in your life. You repent and you turn to God. And you're baptized as an outward expression of what's happened inside your heart. As the people lined up to be baptized by John, it was as if they were declaring, I need the cleansing and forgiveness of God too. But also notice how quickly they responded. It wasn't as if they heard John's message and went home thinking, that sounds like a great idea. In a few years, when I become more mature and know more about the Bible and become a better person, I think I'd like to get baptized too. No, they responded immediately. It was the same on the day of Pentecost. Peter's appeal on that day was simple. It says this in Acts 2, 38. 
Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 3,000 people were baptized that day. It was the very first step of obedience they took. Now, at Grace, we take people through some basic studies to make sure that they know what they're doing and doing it for the right reasons. But the point is that baptism marks the beginning of the Christian life, not the end. It's the entrance ceremony, not the graduation. In the New Testament, there is no such category as an unbaptized Christian because baptism was just the normal way that people responded to the gospel. It was the most basic way that people invited the work of God into their lives. It's how you welcome the king. And so I have to ask if that's how you've seen it. Have you been baptized in as, as an admission that you're a sinner and you need God's cleansing in your life? Have you been baptized as a reflection of your own repentance? Are you the way I was? Seeing baptism as an extracurricular in the Christian life it just never seems that important. Clearly, it's important to God. So baptism is how you prepare for the coming of the king. But not everyone who heard John's message was baptized. As urgent as he was, his message fell on deaf ears with some in the crowd. And what it teaches us is that baptism can't help those who can't see that they need it. If you're not interested in changing, or if you're put off by the idea of God being in charge of your life, baptism will never be something that feels like a priority. If you see religion as a club, or you're just going through the motions, baptism will always feel extreme and unnecessary. Baptism can't help those who can't see that they need it. While in verse 6, a crowd of people was responding to John's message and repentance, another group of people arrives with their clipboards to stand on the sidelines and critique what he was doing. Follow along as I read from verses 7 to 12. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, anytime a prophet calls you a brood of snakes, you know that something's up. <laughs> the harsh words come because these religious leaders represented a false view of spirituality. They represented what was wrong with Judaism in his mind, not what was right. They were the most earnest religious people of John's day, but their lives didn't evidence the love and mercy that true religion should produce. So he calls on them in verse 8. He says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. As is, baptism would be meaningless to them. 
If they had no intention of repenting, but only wanted another religious duty to check off, it would do more harm than good. They were like the people who buy the team jersey, but never show up to practice. They're the ones that are always carrying around their good life fitness bag, but no one's ever actually seen them in the gym. And John seems to know why. Watch what he says in verse 9. He says, And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Do you understand what he's saying? They figure that they were okay because they were born in the right club. Since they were descendants of Abraham, as long as they went through the right rituals, they were already in. They didn't need repentance. They didn't need baptism. And this is kind of how the practice can get confused in churches that baptize infants. If you can be christened, which literally means made Christian, because your parents were in the club and they did a ritual for you, then it's pretty easy to think that you don't need to repent. If you've already done a thing that you called baptism, that in scripture is supposed to signify repentance, then it's easy to assume that whatever repentance is, you must have already done it. In verse 10, John tells these religious leaders who treat salvation like a club, that they may be part of an historic tree, but God's about to put an ax to that tree and burn it up in the fire. And that's the message of verse 11 also. John was pointing to Jesus and said that he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. For those who turn from sin to faith in him, baptism in Jesus will bring the inward transformation of the Holy Spirit. But for those like the religious leaders who reject Jesus because they figure they're already in the club, he'll baptize them in fire. His ministry would bring judgment on them. They'll be like the chaff that separated from the wheat at harvest time and burned up. And you can't read words like that in scripture and not stop to examine yourself. If you've not been baptized because you're not ready to repent and you're not willing to turn to Jesus, well, that's one thing. At least you know where you stand with him and are prepared for the consequences if the warnings of scripture come true. But if you call yourself a Christian, it's different. If you refuse the only act God gives to show that you need God's cleansing, then you have to ask what's really going on in your heart. If you ignore what Jesus says is the way that you should show your desire to repent and follow him, then you need to ask yourself why. If you're a child, we'd encourage you to wait until you're a little older and can think through the implications of this more fully. But if you're a teen, if you're a young adult, or if you're old enough to know better, don't do what I did. Don't just ignore baptism as something that's probably not that useful, not that urgent, not that important. Now, so far we said that baptism is how you prepare for the coming of the king. But then we said that baptism can't help those who can't see that they need it. Finally, I'd like to consider how the only one who didn't need baptism submitted to it. Jesus is the only person ever born who didn't need to repent. He was the only man who didn't need to be cleansed of sin. And yet, he stood in line with the other sinners and submitted to it. Let's consider why. Follow along as I read verses 13 to 17. 
Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus and, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now, John has been announcing the visitation of God and he sees before him the one he's been pointing to. With Jesus lining up to be baptized, John says the only reasonable thing that could be said. I'm the one who needs to be baptized, not you. Jesus is holier, greater, more powerful, and more pure. What sense does it make for John to baptize him? It's like you're a high school physics, physics teacher and Einstein walks into your grade nine class. Are you really gonna continue teaching? In verse 15, Jesus answers him. Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Now pause for a moment to make sure you're taking this in. Jesus has lived his life perfectly fixed on the will of Father. He has no need to repent. He's lived a sinless life, so he has no need for cleansing. He's he walked in perfect righteousness, so he has no need for forgiveness. He's come, God come in human flesh. He doesn't need to prepare for the coming of someone else. And yet, and yet he says, let's do this. There are parts of the symbolism that I realize don't make a lot of sense, but I need to do this to fulfill all righteousness. He did it to affirm John's message and his call for repentance. He did it to show his solidarity with the sinners he came to die for. He did it to show his perfect submission to the will of the Father. I read this week of a medical student and he had missed a practicum on venereal disease and he had to make it up at a sexual health clinic. When he arrived at the clinic though, he was stuck in a line of people waiting to be treated for STDs. He didn't like how that felt. So he tried to jump the line and report from his, for his practicum by explaining to the nurse that he was a medical student. And she sent him back in line saying, you got it the same way as everybody else. Now you can stand in line like everybody else. <laughs> now, as Jesus is standing in line to be baptized, it's with that kind of shame being projected onto him. He's made to look like a novice and a failure. He's standing in line with prostitutes and thieves. And you have to ask yourself, if he would do that for me, why wouldn't I do the same for him? If the only person in history who didn't need to be baptized did so in obedience to the Father and in love for those who would follow him, how can I, knowing my need of cleansing, knowing that I am a sinner, refuse the first command God has given to express my faith in him? As Jesus submits to the Father in baptism, the heavens are opened. The other members of the Trinity speak love and affirmation over him. And it's interesting how they do that. 
Notice that the Father is heard, but can't be seen. And the Spirit is seen, but can't be heard. But their expressions form a chord in verse 17. There it says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. If you were in the crowd witnessing all this, you'd never forget it. It was a message that they needed to hear, but I think it was a message that Jesus needed to hear as well. There was a sense in which the son of God becoming the son of man was a solo mission, a lonely mission by the second member of the Trinity. He craved the affirmation of his father the way all of us do. He longed for the filling of the Spirit the way each of us does. And this unforgettable demonstration would carry him through many dark days on the road to the cross. Now, full disclosure, this has never happened at any baptism that I've presided over. And I don't think that's proof that I'm doing it wrong. This was unique to Jesus. But I do think something similar does happen whenever someone is baptized. There's a sense that you've drawn your line in the sand. You've put up the flag and shown whose side you're on. It's a public expression of something that may have been very private to you. It's this unambiguous declaration of something that might have otherwise been a little bit fuzzy or unclear. And as you submit to it, you can't help but feel God's pleasure. Not that you've accomplished some great feat, but you've responded to the good news in the way that Jesus calls you to. If you haven't been baptized, why on earth haven't you? I've baptized 17-year-olds and I've baptized a 97-year-old. And plenty of people in between. And yet they all got wet the same way. If you've genuinely understood the good news of how Jesus saves sinners, there's no such thing as too soon, and it's never too late. Come to him today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that there is hope for people who have fallen short of your standard. We thank you that there is forgiveness offered to sinners. There's grace and salvation held out to those who don't deserve it. Father, baptism is a way of picturing that amazing cleansing that you have accomplished for us through Jesus Christ. And we receive that cleansing by faith alone. I thank you for the picture that, Je that baptism provides us. I pray, Father, for anyone who hasn't responded to that good news in baptism. Help them to fix their eyes on Jesus. If the sinless one who had no need of baptism was willing to submit to it for us, how can we not joyfully respond? Thank you, Father, for your great grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I hope this message has helped you to see baptism as your first response to the gospel. If it stirred up questions or if you'd like to know more about what's involved in baptism or a relationship with Jesus, send me an email or leave a comment below. If you think this is a message that others need to hear, share the link and help spread the word. And as always, for more messages of hope, visit gracebc.ca.
God bless and see you next time.